0: Scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now.
1: Broadcasting at
2: 88.9 FM. Hello computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most
0: reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter radio brought to you by
1: machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free two hello my name is Kimberly Martin and you're listening to Kimberly Martin's real people of Orange County a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest these are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine The opinions expressed on this show are totally mine and do not reflect the opinions of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County and other shows, please go to KUCI.org. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. It is Thursday, and if it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you are listening to Real People OC, and I am your host, Kimberly Martin, and we come here each and every week to highlight individuals in Orange County doing meaningful things, and I just thought, you know, I better pause and talk about KUCI for a minute because I think we do really meaningful uh, work here at KUCI as well and if you haven't heard yet and if you're just tuning into my show now, we are in the midst of our fun drive. This is something we do twice a year. We take a little time out to ask for your pledge and I don't know KUCIs are pretty flexible people here. We have students standing by right now in our studio. We are surrounded by a beautiful collection of albums and of Vinyl and CDs Uh, The music here they play at KUCI You aren't going to hear anywhere else That's for sure And so the programming we bring you uh, we like to say we're a little piece of the underground radio. Had a friend over um, talking about KUCI the other day, and I said, Where are you from? And she said, Seattle. And I said, Oh, no wonder you love KUCI so much. She goes, Yeah, it's just that little bit of grunge movement here that I'm um, still alive and well in Orange County. So we appreciate being able to be here to bring you and offer you this programming here. And this is the time of year where we ask you to appreciate us a little too. So if you're interested, we will accept pledge amounts in any amount, but there's um, some great ways you can participate. You can do a basic pledge of thirty-five dollars and become a KUCI fan, and you can choose a T-shirt or a CD if you'd like. We have lots of great music here. You can be a KUCI supporter at fifty dollars a pledge, and with that you get two KUCI T-shirts or CDs or one or what or the other. You know, you can any combination you choose, and. Um, Even better, a KUCI sustainer. uh, See us hang out here a little longer. We have been here since 1968, providing 24-hour-a-day radio, nonstop. We are all volunteers. We turn this over in about 30 seconds. One DJ leaves and another one pops in, and this, boy, it runs like a well-oiled machine. And that is all through volunteers. Um, The last pledge, you could be a KUCI founder at the $200 level and receive eight items of your choosing or you could donate those all back so we can raise even more money. So I hope you enjoy what we offer here. And um, I hope that our listeners will let us know how much they enjoy having us here by pledging uh, this week and next week. So um, listen, I want to get into today's show. And um, I've been really pleased about the work we've been doing here in the last couple of weeks. And I'm really proud of it. So It's um, today we wind down on our series on domestic violence. This is going to be our part four, and we will delve into the legal aspects of domestic violence. And first, I just want to take a brief moment to thank those people that have really supported me in this effort. A big thanks goes out to Jane Kennedy of Orange County Business Journal for really uh, pushing me to do a series like that. Jane is such a huge supporter over there of community and uh, putting people together in a really meaningful way. And so um, pretty much anybody I meet that knows Jane really appreciates all the efforts that she does. But Jane brought me to uh, Nora Caldwell and Vivian Kleekak with the hope that we would choose not one week uh, segment to feature human options, but rather a whole series so we could dig really deep into the topic. And... Um, Nora, thank you, stepped up to the plate and really designed a very well-rounded look at domestic violence here in Orange County. And she organized the lineup of individuals that we have been featuring over the last month. So um, I'm just, I'm so thankful to Nora. Big shout out to Nora if you're listening. Thank you so much. Um, we couldn't have done this without you here at KUCI. So um, one of the most important things that we wanted to do for you, the listener, was to let you see all of the services that are available in Orange County to aid anyone that finds themselves dealing with domestic violence. And so if you see yourself in that situation, we hope that we have brought you the resources um, to do something, to see yourself changing the circumstances that you're in and know that it isn't just one or two organizations or a fly-by-night Um, you know, shelter, there is some very sustainable efforts on your behalf that are ready to catch you if you should decide to jump from your current position and make a change to better your life. It's been a really illuminating several weeks where we began this time looking at human options um, in week one. This is the organization that would be your first first call, really, and your frontline defense. So I'm going to give you that hotline number. It's a 24-hour hotline number, It is 877-854-3594. And um, good news is, well, the CEO, Vivian Kleekak, was here with Nora, and we discussed the personal side of domestic violence and all that the organization that Vivian heads up uh, does to help its members of our community that are in need. Um, From there, we touched on some of the other fine organizations that work in concert with human options, like Orangewood Children's Foundation, like our very own UCI and uh, the law school, and like the Rays Foundation, we had uh, Eldon Baber here. So, so many of these organizations come together to continue the process of recovery from the effects of domestic violence. And um, it was pretty exciting today. The news that we received was was pretty wonderful. That um, uh, Vivian Kleekak is being chosen as a semifinalist for the Ernst Young. Entrepreneur of the Year Award. That's for 2014, and this award is one of the world's most prestigious business awards for entrepreneurs. So a big congratulations are in order to Vivian. We have a lot of heads nodding in the studio, a lot of excitement over that accomplishment. I think it's pretty amazing that an organization that is a nonprofit organization and devoted to domestic violence is receiving recognition on this level. It's pretty amazing. So we definitely appreciate her and all of her accomplishments and what that has done for Orange County. So today, um, this part four in our series, we're going to focus strictly on the legal aspects of domestic violence. And again, as we have in all previous weeks, I want to encourage anybody that wants to call to call in and ask our panel any questions that you'd like. We're here, and I promise you I won't hang up on you. If I do, you can just call back and I'll try again. (laughs) I usually get it right one time or another. So... um, in the studio, we have three guests. Jane Stover, and she is a clinical professor of law at the UCI School of Law and um, heads up the um, the UCI's domestic violence clinic that they teach over there at the law school. Linda Schilling, who is a partner with uh, the law firm Latham & Watkins, and she's going to talk about her work there with... Um, she has a, a special distinction position. We haven't quite nailed it down with Human Options, but really an important member over there. And Vincent Marquez, a licensed clinical social worker and program director at Human Options Emergency Shelter. So I'm going to have each of our guests give a brief overview of their professional background and how um, how it has led them to working in the field of domestic violence, either professionally or on a volunteer basis. And then we'll direct our discussion to the resources that we have here at UCI and give us a basic understanding of how the law can help you in general. So welcome everybody. Um, Try a quick hello in the microphone and let's see if if we're all on. Hello. Hello. Hello, okay, a little closer. Maybe we can just try to, a little more togetherness there. Hello. Hello. Uh, Okay, good. All right, so when you each speak, you're welcome to turn that towards you so you get right on that microphone and we can hear you really clearly. So um, I'm gonna give each of you an opportunity to go ahead and talk. I'll just go around the room. I've got Vincent to my left. Vincent, why don't you go ahead and tell me what you do with Human Options over there, okay?
2: Sure. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, My name is Vincent Marquez. I'm the Program Director for Human Options Emergency Shelter. And part of my role is to ensure that we're providing safety, healing in a way forward to all of our clients that contact us. Now at our agency, we have an emergency shelter, we have a transitional housing program, as well as our Center for Children and Families, which is our community counseling center. And part of my role is program development, as well as staff development, partnership uh, development, strategic planning, and today to provide some awareness and information so that we can provide some services.
1: Okay, good. And and on down the line. Good afternoon,
3: everyone, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Linda Schilling. I'm a partner at the law firm of Latham & Watkins, a resident in the Orange County office, uh, and I've been practicing law for 27 years. I came to know and love human options many years ago, Uh, First, as a volunteer attorney providing pro bono services, which we'll talk a little bit more about later in the program, to clients of Human Options seeking uh, restraining orders and other legal assistance in court uh, to give them and their children a safe place to live to rebuild their lives. From my experience with Human Options clients, I got to know the organization very well And in particular grew very fond of the work they were doing and was very inspired by it. Um, I eventually joined the board of directors and then later the executive committee where I served and had a wonderful experience for I think close to six or seven years. I've recently stepped down from the board and now serve as their outside general counsel advising the board and the executive committee on legal issues affecting the organization. Uh, I want to thank UCI uh, for letting us talk today about human options, and in particular, the legal advocacy services we provide to our clients.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Linda. All right. Now, Jane. Yeah. Kimberly, thanks so much for having us here this afternoon, and thanks to the listeners for tuning in. Um, We so appreciate you dedicating this four-part series to this incredibly important topic. So I direct the domestic violence clinic at UCI's law school. And um, here at the law school, we are now a six credit clinic where second and third year law students enroll in the clinic. And they have a class with me twice a week where I'm teaching them about lawyering skills and trial skills. And then under my supervision, um, they are representing clients in court, and we really um, try to do a, a pretty holistic representation and look at civil, criminal, immigration, and policy interventions in domestic violence. So most of our clients we meet because they're referred to us for help with a restraining order case or with an immigration issue. But after the students start interviewing them, we identify additional issues, often housing Public benefits, other sorts of legal problems that people are facing. And this is really how I came to devote my career to this topic. Because I was back in law school, I was doing a, a clinic, and while I was doing, while I was representing clients in housing and public benefits issues, I was seeing that the the core source of their problem was due to abuse in the home. And from there, I have taught at Georgetown, at American University, and at Seattle University. And so now this is my 10th year teaching a domestic violence clinic.
1: Very interesting. Okay, good. Well, so we're off to a good start. I, uh, Why don't we start from that place where an individual makes a phone call? What can they expect with um, support from the law. I think this is probably one of the scariest um, parts of the equation, is the lack of understanding of the law and how it supports the decision that they're going to make. Um, Go ahead, let's start with that, Vincent, if we could.
2: Sure, so when we receive a phone call at our Community Counseling Center, which is the Center for Children and Families, uh, the first thing that we do is assess what their needs are. And at that time, we are asking some questions and scheduling a time for them to come in so that we can obtain more information and provide information and education so that they have uh, their rights so they know that what their rights are and can make an informed decision and just as you mentioned it can be you know a very complex uh, system the legal system and this is on the heel of maybe the most stressful time in their life having been a victim of domestic violence and so what our advocates strive to do is to provide education and information and resources to connect them with the uh, the agencies the legal clinics to provide uh, those services to meet their needs and so from there oftentimes what happens is that you know we will find that there are additional needs whether they're clinical needs for the children or for themselves and uh, provide services for that too.
1: Okay, so an individual calls you, they are assessed. How can they know that the law is gonna support them? Can you give us an example of an early stage intervention with the law on behalf of a victim?
2: So when the clients come in um, and we assess what their needs are, you know, there's a myriad of issues that impact these families. Um, The legal is usually one that um, they're not thinking of with a lot of the trauma and stress that's happening. And so what we assess is what their needs are. So perhaps there's not a restraining order in place. And so what we do is we provide information uh, to guide them through that process. Um, And from there, they can decide you know what their goals are and what other needs they have so you know that might lead us to um, an issue of child custody or divorce um, and other family law issues and our legal advocates are trained to provide information and education but they are not attorneys so we partner with uh... uci law uh... chapman latham and watkins and the list goes on to provide uh... assistance from attorneys pro bono assistance to help them navigate uh... those complex family law issues um, and so from there we have them come back sometimes for our legal clinics um, and we have them at all of our sites and uh, to determine how we can best meet their needs.
1: So an individual makes a call, can they expect to be protected from the moment they make that phone call?
2: You know, it it really depends on their situation. And, uh, you know, many times we need to assess whether or not um, the police have been contacted. And if so, you know, was there a police report made um, you know, were children involved, uh were ch- uh child protective services involved. So it, it really depends case by case. Um, what we do provide is information and education so that we can connect each caller or client to our emergency shelter if they are in need of immediate safety. So, yes, we, we can provide that immediate safety, um, but the, the process of obtaining a restraining order, um, unless it's an emergency protective order, uh, does take, you know, some time. And so our legal advocates work, uh, you know, very fast to be able to provide that and to connect with our uh, community partners.
1: Okay, are we talking a week, a day, a, you know, a month to get a restraining order if somebody felt really compelled to to have that safety measure provided for them?
2: You know, it can happen uh, within 24 hours for an emergency protective order for the police to initiate that. Um, for a temporary restraining order, it can be, you know, a couple days. They have to go to the court and obtain that or the Orange County Family Justice Center and that would protect them for five days. Um, it is more of a process to obtain a permanent restraining order, which could protect the clients for up to five years.
0: Okay, yeah. anybody else want to weigh in? Uh, yeah, Kimberly, I wanted to add to that. Thanks so much, Vincent. Um, just I, I first want to stress the importance of safety planning. And so when we're thinking about what kind of timetable people might be on, um, we, I, I think all of our organizations operate in a very survivor-centered, client-centered manner where we want to do work with the individual to make sure that they're in a safe situation at the point when they're filing a court case. Um, the highest point of danger for someone is typically when they're trying to leave a relationship. And so in this field, we talk about the risks of separation assault and so much of domestic violence being someone's exertion of power and control over the other person. And so at a point when someone is filing having a court case and this being a very formal signal that I'm wanting to separate from the relationship or wanting a dramatic change, um, then that can be a point of increased risk to the survivor and to the petitioner in the case. And so it's so important that any attorneys doing this work engage in safety planning, um, and that's certainly something that we do in our clinic as we're preparing with a client to file and that, that Vincent, that the advocates there at Human Options do as part of the background education and advice they're giving individuals. Um, someone can get that emergency protection order through a police officer the same you know, the same day that someone that a officers responding to a call. Um, The temporary restraining order someone could get if they qualify for it by coming to the courthouse and that's issued that same day. It's um, really focused on the kind of immediate safety related relief and so the court's not at that point dealing with possession of property um, but is looking at some immediate safety concerns And, and then that can be in place here in California for 21 to 25 days. Then there's a court day scheduled that the other party would have notice of, um, where then you can come and request an order, as Vincent said, for up to five years for that initial order. Okay. Um, Go ahead. So
3: once that temporary restraining order is issued, it gets served on the perpetrator. So the perpetrator then knows that that, uh, typically he is banned from making contact with the woman, and there are very specific uh, constraints then imposed on the perpetrator as far as how close he can come to to her and oftentimes her children too. There's a um, specific um, place in the temporary restraining order form where the woman can provide for uh, restraint against, for example, children or other loved ones who also may be in danger. Uh, from the perpetrator. So that restraining order will provide specifics that uh, control the perpetrator's conduct until the next court date, at which time he'll have an opportunity to be heard with regard to
1: the permanent restraining order petition that comes next. So in many cases, this is probably an individual that's being um, kept from their own home if the perpetrator is married or living with the victim and the children. Is that correct? does anybody have some numbers on that
2: being kept from their homes?
1: Yes. I mean, if let's Mm. say this is a family domestic family violence situation where the wife um, has just decided she's had enough and wants to protect her or her children, in many cases, is the restraining order um, keeping the perpetrator from the home? Or has she then had need to plan on fleeing to an emergency shelter? Is that the most likely scenario?
2: Right now, that's the most likely scenario. I think that's changing, and what we're finding is that there is new policy that is really directed at helping survivors um, by providing tenants' rights, but initially in that moment of immediate uh, safety, you know, to protect herself and her children, uh, you know, unless there are a support network or family and friends, oftentimes we do get those calls at our emergency shelter, yes.
1: Okay, you know, I want to point out one of the more interesting things that happened at the beginning of our series was we had a gentleman call, who I don't believe was engaged in um, the act of violence, but but certainly understood it from an emotional side and said, we don't. Mean it. And I thought that was so interesting. Vivian handled the caller so well. She said, You know, we offer that counseling to you as well. Do you find very many people that want to break their own cycle of violence will call in and seek help? Or are they just too afraid um, of the legal implications of doing
2: that? You know, I th- again, I think it's changing. I think people, more people are coming forward. Um, prior to being the director of the emergency shelter, I was the director of our Center for Children and Families, which is our outpatient community counseling center. And there we did obtain many calls from uh, batterers looking for, for help and for, you know, coming forward to say that, you know, they, they know that um, they want to make a change and they want to make a difference. And I think there has been some information in the media uh, wh- which is highlighting that, you know, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, um, you know, it, it, it not only impacts um, women but also men. And so we are, too, getting those phone calls. And, you know, we do have batterers intervention programs and you know for those many of those are mandated uh by the courts but you know we're finding that we are getting calls for uh men coming forward that want help um and so we are seeing that
1: okay um if you're just tuning in this is real
2: people of orange county and I
1: am your host Kimberly Martin we are here at 88.9 FM in Irvine. That's KUCI. And we are in uh, part four of our series on domestic violence. And today we're focusing on the legal aspects of domestic violence. So if anybody does have a phone call, feel free to call in and ask a question of our panel. We, um, I want to cite the statistic. One in four women will be physically assaulted by a jealous boyfriend or husband during her lifetime. So the statistics are staggering uh, in terms of how many people will actually interact with domestic violence in all of our lives. We either know somebody or it's happened to us. Um, I thought this was interesting one-third of all 911 calls reporting domestic violence in Orange County are made by children Mm. and so um, we got to talk about the health implications of um, victims and uh, onlookers of victims children as well last time Um, you can go to KUCI.org to listen to any part of this series Let's go ahead and dig a little deeper into the work that uh, the two of you are doing, ladies. We have Linda and uh, Jane across the table talking about the work that they're doing um, with Human Options. Um, Speaking, this is Linda.
3: Uh, The work that our firm, Latham & Watkins, does, uh, we provide pro bono legal assistance to the clients of Human Options and other domestic violence shelters also in Orange County. Uh, to assist clients secure the legal rights and remedies that uh, are available to protect them and provide a safe future for them and for their families. Uh, As we've mentioned, typically that process starts with a temporary restraining order. Again, as Jane mentioned, focus on safety immediately uh, from the violence that they have fled. Uh, Once that is secured, Uh, Because it's a temporary remedy, our next step is to gather the evidence needed to present to the court at a, a permanent restraining order hearing, which is akin to a short trial where you present witnesses and present evidence in support of an order that will bar the perpetrator from interacting, contacting, communicating with the victim of domestic violence and oftentimes the children as well, and set forth very specific limitations and constraints on any contact uh, with, with her and the children, uh, depending on the circumstances. Uh, those restraining orders uh, can be issued for up to five years at the court's discretion. That process is uh, really dependent in most instances on having effective legal counsel. Women certainly could try themselves to secure that restraining order. What we have found over the years quite consistently is victims of domestic violence generally don't control the purse strings in the home. And when they go to court, if they can't afford to hire an attorney themselves because the finances had been handled by the perpetrator. The perpetrator shows up with an attorney and the victim does not. And so the playing field at the very outset was not level and put the client of Human Options, the victim, at a terrible disadvantage. She's already suffered a tremendous emotional strain, shock, um is, is dealing with the trauma of having left an abusive relationship oftentimes with children and no viable means to support herself and now she's facing a scary court process that's unknown and quite daunting and she doesn't have counsel and her perpetrator does um, as it's easy to imagine that didn't give her a pretty good chance of prevailing uh, and securing that restraining order What we try to do through our pro bono services, as Jane also does through the UCI legal clinic, is provide those legal services on a pro bono basis to the clients, to the victims of domestic violence, to give them a chance of getting the rights and remedies that the law provides, not only by way of a restraining order, but also the ancillary issues that come up when you separate like divorce, child custody, child support, perhaps immigration also. Okay,
0: Jane, you wanna comment on that? Great, thanks. Um, so we accept a number of referrals from Human Options and also accept referrals from Laura's house, and some of our immigration referrals come from Public Law Center, and so we've had a wonderful working relationship with all of these agencies in Orange County that are doing such great work, and um, a- as as we're working with clients on the legal aspects of and different ways that the law can help intervene in abuse, they're continuing to work with the therapist's and advocates at organizations like Human Options. Um, before, we mentioned the problem of, of the, the real impact of violence on children in the home, and so I've been just amazed by the extent of the counseling services that Human Options offers to the children and to the adult survivors. So that's been a really key piece of people actually being able to maintain an end to violence and heal from the trauma that they've experienced. I'll... Um, In terms of, you know, one thing that I think is we're Talking about our topic today, uh, the law's response to domestic violence, it's really important to think about the context in which we're coming from in the history. You look back several centuries, and it was fine for a husband to abuse his wife as long as he didn't kill or maim her. There were no legal penalties. Um, And so we're coming out of that history of the right of chastisement, rule of thumb, of, of that world. And it wasn't until 1992 that every state actually had a law against domestic violence. And at that point, many of the laws addressed wife abuse. I'm doing air quotes here. (laughs) But the laws said wife (laughs) abuse. And so clearly they weren't addressing same-sex relationships. They weren't addressing people in dating relationships. And teen dating violence wasn't on the horizon at all. It's only been in very recent years that we've become aware that actually one in three teenagers experiences dating violence. And so one, um, you know, we're talking about a really heavy topic today. But one of the very exciting things about our work is that it is so dynamic and this is a really evolving field. So we now have a lot more responses to address Multiple different types of abuse in different kinds of situations. Linda mentioned many of the different types of remedies available now through the restraining orders. Another one is the possession of pets, and so we became aware in recent years that approximately that that in domestic violence households with pets, approximately seventy percent of the time those pets are abused, and that's part of the abuse that a batterer is carrying out is the threat or the actual abuse of the pets, and you can imagine. How psychologically devastating that is to the survivor and the children in the household and so now that's actually part of our statutory response to abuse interesting now are there any statistics on um, uh,
1: restraining orders that are violated and how does the law go about protecting victims when that does happen and what can a perpetrator expect if a um, restraining order is violated can anybody comment on that
0: I um, can offer some statistics. And so l- l- let me give you first the, the good picture in terms of, of the prevention of violence. Um, and so restraining orders have been proven to be highly effective in reducing or eliminating violence, with um, one study showing that when women applied for orders, 98% felt more in control of their lives, 90% felt more in control of the relationship, and the act of applying generally improved their sense of well-being and another study finding that when they applied and qualified for a restraining order, individuals experienced a rapid and significant decline in violence. There was a study of 2,700 women who had received restraining orders that was conducted in Seattle, and that showed an 80% decrease in police-reported subsequent physical and non-physical intimate partner violence, including significantly reducing the risk of weapons threats, injuries, abuse-related medical treatment, and contact by the abusive partner. Now this is the good side of the picture. So we, we know that overall violence is being dramatically decreased. But still about half of restraining orders are violated in some sense of the way. So through contact you or through half. about half of wow. restraining orders still are violated. So this is a area where because you have those underlying power and control dynamics, that persists even beyond the court order. And so part of the success of the court orders themselves is having them be carefully tailored to the individual survivor's particular experience. And so Linda's talking about, and I would also echo the importance of having good counsel and having the attorneys involved from the outset to be able to actually tailor the court order to what the survivor needs to end violence and what's keeping those individuals perhaps otherwise connected Um, and then also the enforcement of orders and so we need the law enforcement and um, the and we need that kind of follow through on the orders and so it is more than just a piece of paper I, I strongly believe that it is and it has that great potential but that there are a number of different community organizations that need to work in unison to actually um, carry out the protection order remedy to its full potential.
1: Okay. Linda, did you want to comment?
0: Yeah. Just echoing on uh, Jane's
3: comments, uh, the importance of having counsel present can't be overstated. Um, Court is daunting to lay people generally. When someone has been emotionally, in a t- and in this instance, oftentimes physically traumatized, it becomes that much more frightening for her. Uh, g- g- add into the equation that she, for the first time since fleeing, will be confronting her perpetrator. Um, and so those dynamics are, are daunting to a strong person, let alone one that is so emotionally vulnerable, uh, she must have an advocate that can speak for her uh, or uh, that we see uh, very little chance of success if she's attempting to secure those rights that she's entitled to on her own. Uh, with regard to uh, the enforcement of the protective order, I couldn't agree more with Jane's comment that understanding the family dynamics and requesting an order that is specifically tailored to the facts and circumstances of the relationships between the perpetrator and the children, uh, the survivor, um, the greater family, if the greater family is involved, childcare issues, financial issues is critical, and counsels uh, expert guidance and assistance in crafting that order for the court's consideration is critical to the success of securing the protection that the victim and the family needs. Uh, Lastly, the order must be enforced and it must be enforced consistently and violations need to be addressed quickly. Um, and, and, And that requires vigilance. And again, that's where counsel can assist while the survivor is focused on trying to rebuild her life And her children's lives
1: okay can anybody cite some examples of um, some successful interventions that you've had where let's say an individual was able to get a restraining order Um, you you talked about the consistency as though it's not actually available is there some I'm actually asking a two-part question here Um, has there been situations let, let me digress has there been situations where the uh, restraining order did not produce the protection that it was intended to and if that is the situation um, what can what can somebody hope for in terms of alternate protections perhaps is it just maybe being taken to an off-site location what are some of the things that happen Vincent everybody's shaking their heads
2: yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's it's varied, it's case by case. I do hear of this happening. Um, you know, there are major safety concerns with that. If someone violates a restraining order, it becomes a very unpredictable uh, situation. You know, we work with many schools as well as community uh, service partners and, um, and with employers uh, of, uh, you know, our clients. And working with them to take into account safety planning and taking the, the safety precautions necessary. But you're absolutely right. You know, it is risky business, and, and you never know um, what what the batter is capable of. And so we, we do try to safety plan as best we can um, and to come up with solutions for that.
1: Are the situations so different that you find it hard to lay a, um, a broad plan in place for most people or are some of the situations just also similar that um, that you're able to just say, hey, this is the plan. This is how this is how we get you back to you know being independent.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And, you know, I think it comes down to our uh, clients' right to self determination. Part of what we try to do at Human Options is to provide the information, the awareness, so that they can identify all of the risks involved. And so, what may be uh, a significant risk to one client may not be a significant risk to another client. Can so, you give an example of sure, what that would be? Sure. So, um, let's say that. We have a client and you know she has a restraining order in place and she also has the children's school on the restraining order and she has done uh, everything that she needed to do through the courts and she's employed and whether or not her husband would you know violate that restraining order um, you know she she doesn't know what he's capable of him he's obviously very violent and unpredictable but whether or not that would Uh, stop her from you know uh, having her children attempt uh, attend school um, or for her to go back to work is a decision that she's she's going to make and so we do have some clients that are willing to make that decision They safety plan they have you know their uh, place of employment on the restraining order the school and you know they choose to continue to live their life in the in the safest way possible we have other clients where the risks uh, outweigh you know the benefits and decide not to do that and so they may move to another county or out of state simply to protect themselves
0: Yeah, Yeah, and what we know from the social science literature um, it repeated studies have shown that really the survivor is his or her own best expert on his or her safety, and we have different kinds of lethality and danger assessment tools, but that really the survivor is the one who has been surviving the situation, and the more that you work with folks, the more that you see how incredibly resourceful people are. So that's the point where we always want to start, is seeing what resources the client actually has, and being able to provide really culturally competent resources and and advice um, that then helps to address whatever the person's own situation is. We don't want our clients to become further isolated because of the representation or our advice, and so we always really work in unison with clients on figuring out what might be best in their situation. Okay.
1: So, um... You guys have been at this for a long time, and, I, well, actually, not long enough, it appears, if 1992 was the first legislation that has passed. But can you talk to me about the broad um, overlook of the law that has come into play to support? I know we touched on that there might be some things you can share with us, Vincent, that are new in state legislature that are supportive of um, victims of domestic violence. And then just a broad overview of how the law has changed in support of the victim.
2: Sure. You know, uh, let me share two new laws, uh, state laws, SB 400 and SB 612. SB 400 protects the employment rights of victims of domestic violence, and essentially what the law does is it protects survivors from termination or discrimination because of their known status as a survivor of domestic violence.
1: Now that's interesting. Can you give me an example of why legislation like that was necessary?
2: Sure. Well, what it does is it requires employers to accommodate reasonable safety accommodations. And so, you know, if I was just reading about a case in San Diego at a elementary school, may have been a middle school where, um, you know, I believe it was the administrative assistant who had a restraining order in place. Her husband went to the school and violated the restraining order. Three months later, um, she was fired from her job. And asked to leave and so you know I've been hearing that across the state this has happened several times and that employers are taking you know the risks into account could you hear me yeah that's better better, yeah okay and so um, you know so that would be one reason
0: so Go ahead. Can I chime in? Because this is an amazing example where this was a story that came out of San Diego, I think just last summer. And then by October, there was already the legislation in place that then went into effect on January 1st. And so this was just such a great (laughs) example of the attention being brought to the problem of somebody being discriminated against in their workplace. And then all of the very concrete now provisions that are in the law for different things that employers can do, because employers might be at a loss for, what, what can I do, and how can I protect my other employees, but just by changing the person's phone number, where their lo- where their office is located, having a workplace safety plan. So there's so many actual concrete things in that law. It was a great example of a success. Absolutely. So was the problem there
1: that they just didn't want to make the accommodations for this individual, or was it that they just felt overwhelmed by the task of having this be part of the workplace
0: from that background story um, that I was seeing in the news, it seemed that it became known that this woman had experienced domestic violence through her um, efforts to use the formal justice systems and to get restraining orders, um, and so and and then was very surprised when she was fired. So California is now one of just seven states that has these kinds of workplace protections. Okay. Um, so, I mean, are we,
1: so that's a, a good example. What was the second one I know you wanted to bring
2: to us as well? Sure. It's SB 612, Tenants' Rights. And what this bill does is it expands the permitted documentation for survivors' early lease termination. The law used to require victims to provide a police report of a restraining order or valid documentation, um, which victims did not always have. Uh, either they didn't have a police report or the restraining order wasn't provided. So what this allows is for additional documentation to include um, documentation from a domestic violence counselor or from a healthcare practitioner.
1: Okay. Um, And so that's important because she might just need to flee, right? Right. And And there
2: are many circumstances for which at times, um, you know, victims of domestic violence are not granted restraining orders. So they're not guaranteed, and there are many uh, reasons for that or uh, you know, other c- circumstances.
1: Okay. Um, so I love that you said in the beginning of this, this probably goes to you, Linda, that really legal services and you, Jane, um, have leveled the playing field because so often the victim was not represented. What can somebody expect when they when they come forth and they pull themselves out of the situation? The goal of, um, I think,
3: pro bono attorneys generally, certainly in our firm, is to treat our pro bono clients identically as to any other client of our firm, which means we have um, the obligation and the privilege of representing that individual in securing the rights and remedies that she decides are the best fit for her and her family um that representation in as in any case civil or criminal is critical to making the court system work judges rely on attorneys to educate them as to what the law is what the facts are and and who should win uh, and judges rely on attorneys to present that information to the court. Uh, when a, when a, a client goes to court on his or her own, especially when the other side is represented by counsel, they're at a decided disadvantage, both procedurally, uh, understanding how the rules of court work, the law works, as well as substantively. They don't know what's required of them to secure their rights and remedies. As a result, deadlines get mixed, get missed, uh, notices don't get served properly, uh, communication slow, and in the instance of domestic violence, uh, the survivor is put at greater risk because she could not secure the remedies that she would otherwise be entitled to in a timely manner. Uh, which has, in some instances, very unfortunate consequences. So providing the pro bono assistance is critical to making sure the courts function as they were intended to.
1: So can we talk about what some of those little known rights are
0: that a victim may not know she has coming to her? And there has been, there have been so many different kinds of legal remedies passed. Um, one of the one of the major pieces of federal legislation was the Violence Against Women Act, which covers a broad range of, of different areas. And so, part of that is in the interstate enforcement of of the restraining orders or civil protection orders across you know across state lines, uh, making. Um, criminalizing the Interstate Commission of domestic violence, many immigration remedies where our immigration system has typically been based on a um, principle of family unity. And so the, uh, the U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident spouse was responsible for sponsoring the other family members. But that's been the most powerful way of maintaining control over another person is by having the keys to their immigration status. And so starting with the first enactment of VAWA in 1994, We had the self-petition remedy, and over the years, with the different enactments, we've had more and more remedies, and so my clinic actually handles a number of U-Visa cases and battered spouse waivers, um, along with the vow of self-petitions. Um, And and there's also many new remedies that came about during the past year and a half with the last enactment um, in terms of addressing issues on tribal land and um, additional remedies regarding sexual assault and harassment, um, and the funding for many of our programs that now exists in terms of the importance of advocacy advocacy support at every stage.
1: Okay. Um, Talk to us, if you will, about some of the resources that you have at the clinic.
0: So, um, with so many of our clients being uh, needing immigration assistance, many of them don't speak English, and so we use interpreters and translators. I would say for a majority of our cases, and so that ends up being, um, you know, something that we consider. On that note, I'll just mention, you know, in terms of the ways that people might be experiencing abuse, we had a client who um, I've had, had a client in the past whose abuser. Told her that they were living in Boston, Massachusetts, when in fact she was in an entirely different state. And so that can show you, apart from physical violence, just how isolated some of our clients might be. Um, and, and really, I, I feel like a lot of the work of our clinic is through the manpower and womanpower of spending time with clients, really doing in depth interviews, preparing them for direct examination, preparing them to be cross examined, and uh, gathering all of the evidence that Linda talked about before, where any corroborating evidence that we can offer to the court goes such a long way in making our case, and so we'll get those 911 recordings, the police reports, any photographs, any other kinds of physical evidence, other witnesses who might come in to testify, and so much of our efforts are spent preparing for court um, in our in, in those types of cases, or in preparing the immigration petitions. Interesting okay so um, we're drying
1: down on our time. We have a few minutes left um, to talk. Uh, one of the things that you brought up, Linda that I thought was so fascinating was the uh, the requirements of the pro bono work at Latham Watkins. Is this typical for law firms to offer this or can you can you expand on that a bit because I don't think the community would necessarily knows that type of a resource. Um, and how important that is for um, for situations like the domestic violence mm-hmm. here in Orange County.
3: I, I would be delighted to. Uh, many large uh, law firms uh, do provide pro bono legal services. Uh, my firm, Latham and Watkins, uh, which is a global law firm, um, has had a commitment to pro bono going back many decades uh, to our founders. Uh, That commitment is uh, not lip service. Uh, Each lawyer at Latham & Watkins, and we have over 2,000 lawyers around the globe, uh, are required to perform 75 hours of pro bono work each year. Um, And that is a requirement that is monitored uh, and expected to be met. Uh, Most of our lawyers exceed that number. Uh, and the firm embraces all types of pro bono work, not just domestic violence work, but it's really directed by the attorney to follow his or her passion uh, and assist whomever in the community needs assistance. And as a result, we re- we rec- uh, represent a wide range of clients. Uh, I've worked on a capital case for over 10 years involving uh, a young man on California's death row. Uh, We work on immigration cases. um, uh, The list goes on and on, uh, really only limited by uh, what our attorneys are interested in pursuing. Uh, So many firms offer uh, pro bono assistance. Uh, My firm is one of them, and we're very proud of our commitment to pro bono work.
1: Absolutely. So um, any final thoughts? I also want to make sure we get the number for UCI um, contact information. Jane, you can provide that to us. Vincent, do you have any final thoughts?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to thank everybody out there listening and uh, just to remind everybody that if you are experiencing domestic violence, that there is help available. Please give us a call either at our hotline or at our Center for Children and Families. And that number is 949-757-3635. And uh, you know, we do provide information and resources. So if you're confused about your situation and just have questions to ask, you know we have some answers for you. Um, we may ask you to come in so that we can uh, provide a little bit more uh, in-depth service. Um, I'd also like to thank all of our community partners, Latham and Watkins, UCI, Chapman Elder Abuse Law Clinic, the Jewish Federation of Attorneys, Troutman and Sanders, uh, our friends at Public Law Center and Legal Aid Society. Thank you very much.
1: Absolutely. It's been a wonderful series. And then Jane, um, if you could provide contact information
0: and your final thoughts as well. Sure. So the number for our law clinic is 949-824-9660. And Kimberly, I have to tell you that right now, this week, my students are in final exams and that we will be back accepting new clients um, in August. And so at this point, um, we discussed earlier that we would direct people to the Human Options number and most of our clients we accept through referrals by Human Options, Laura's House, and Public Law Center. So people are welcome to call, but we won't be engaging in new representation for this period during the summer when the students are out of session fair enough they they
1: deserve a break after all their hard work don't they <laughs> <laughs> and and
0: we're we're continuing on with many wonderful clients that we're currently working with in terms of a final thought you know i've had the joy of doing this work over an extended period of time and working with clients and families over many years and there is such joy and such hope in seeing the true transformations that occur and people who are able to really, you know, be the parents they want to be and live with it without the threat of violence. And so there's, there is tremendous hope out there.
1: That's wonderful to hear. I thank you for everybody that has participated in this series. It's been amazing. And um, we thank everybody that has made this possible. We are uh, truly grateful that we were able to present this work with you. So um, thank you so much. And uh, we will be up next with uh, Counterspin. I am subbing in for Matt Kaplan right now. And then after that is going to be Planetary Radio. And we'd like to remind you that we are still engaged in our fun drive. So we welcome all of you to, um, gosh, make those phones ring. We'd certainly appreciate it. And um, happy, the hap- oh, the number, 949 <laughs> would be great. Um, if uh, if you could call in, that would be wonderful. So listen, thank you. And um, what did you do? You just took my thing away. <laughs> yeah. I am, uh, we'll, well, up next is Matt Kaplan. And I'm sorry, Planet, or So we'll see you um we'll see you next week thank you everybody